Yasas. Welcome to Greek Like Me, the podcast for Greeks, Philelines, and anybody else who wants to wander in. I'm your host, Pamela Diodes Wood. Email us at stealthgreek at gmail.com to share comments, questions, and stories about Greeks, Greekness, or your own ethnic background. Zito Yelada, Long Live Greece. March 25th is Greek Independence Day. Today we're going to talk about Philhellenes, Philhellenes, or Friends of Greece, who supported the Greek fight for liberty from 400 years of Ottoman subjugation. We'll talk about how Greek fire, the passionate obsession with war, swept through the United States, rallying its people to the Greek cause, and how a diplomat's son and an enslaved black man became heroes in the Greek War of Independence. It didn't quite start out that way. But after watching the struggle for Greece from afar, sympathies were stirred, and eventually it seemed like the entire nation was involved in raising money and donations for Greece. Like most of Europe, America was always obsessed with ancient Greece, informing the government and its philosophy and its architecture. The founding fathers and all educated men and women revered the cradle of civilization, the birthplace of democracy. But... The Greek population during the 400 years of Ottoman occupation didn't interest them much. Europeans and Americans didn't even believe they were the true descendants of the ancient Greeks. They were just slaves, a defeated people. One-time Congressman, Secretary of the U.S. Treasury, and diplomat Albert Gallatin about summed up the European and American view of pre-war Greeks. He said, Greece the classical land of firstborn liberty, for centuries groaned under the most intolerable yoke. Her sons believed to be utterly debased by slavery, degenerated, lost beyond redemption. Yeah, easy to judge when you're in charge of things living comfortably in a nice big house. And of course, during the occupation, Europe got to benefit from pillaging Greece, Napoleon and Lord Elgin of Scotland being the two most famous examples of ones who stole away chunks of Greece's heritage for their own benefit. But rebellion was always alive in the hearts of Greeks, and everything changed on March 23, 1821. The long-running resistance, the hit-and-run sabotage and skirmishes of the Greeks against their oppressors flamed into a full-out battle for a major port. A band of 2,500 clefts, remember them from the Evzone episode? the Greeks who escaped into the mountains and became brigands and rebels. This particular band of rebels, led by their chieftain Petros, a.k.a. Petrobi Mavromichalis, attacked the Ottomans in the southern mainland region of Messenia and freed the port city of Kalamata. Freed it from the men in power, the well-armed, well-trained Ottomans. This was a David and Goliath scenario. Two days later, on March 25th, the Greeks made their own declaration of independence. When the chieftains of the region came together, called themselves the Messianian Senate of Kalamata, and issued a revolutionary proclamation for liberty from the tyranny of the Turks. The proclamation contained an appeal to the citizens of the United States, a country formed from a revolution against tyranny just 40 years earlier, asking for help in freeing Greece from the barbarians. American leaders were suddenly sympathetic. Gallatin continued his earlier speech, saying, Suddenly they, 
the Greeks, awaken from their lethargy. Lethargy. Massacres, raising of villages, rape, slavery, total oppression. Yeah, lethargy. They fly to arms, break their chains. They receive no foreign assistance. Now he's noticing. There's a word in Greek, but I have a clean rating for this podcast. The Greeks had finally gotten the attention of America's power brokers, making them nostalgic maybe over their own battles against the British less than a half a century earlier. Thomas Jefferson was particularly keen to see Greece win freedom, but limited his support to encouraging letters written to a Greek leader and academic headquartered in France. Admittedly, things were complicated. The U.S. had entered the Barbary War of 1801 to protect American merchant vessels from Ottoman corsairs. So, no love lost for the Ottomans. But America's interest in trade throughout Ottoman-controlled territory was pretty strong. On top of that, most of the European powers didn't want to see a free republic appear in Europe, where monarchies were still hanging on. America didn't want to further antagonize European powers, while at the same time trying to pry them off of their colonies on the American continents. European Philhellenes had other ideas, and soon began flocking to Greece to help. But today we're focusing on the U.S. response to the war in Greece. In an address to the American people in the spring of 1823, President James Monroe emphasized the desire of the United States to see Greece stand as an independent nation. Hot dog! But America's isolationist tendency was still in full force. And by December, the president had issued his Monroe Doctrine, one of the main points being non-intervention in European affairs. There would be no troops, no armaments, no influx of money from the U.S. government, but good luck. In his paper, Sympathy and Restraint, William Antholis of the University of Virginia says Monroe was basically, quote, blessing the Greek cause, but not promising anything further than moral support. But Monroe was well aware that members of Congress and private citizens would not drop the matter. And he was right. A week later, Representative Daniel Webster was fomenting on the floor of Congress for an endorsement of Greek independence. And others would soon follow. American politicians and men of letters were keeping Greece in the minds of government officials and the people. Politicians, pastors, war heroes, university professors, and intellectuals wrote letters to newspapers and to Congress. They wrote pamphlets, went on speaking tours throughout the United States to drum up interest in the Greek cause. Former presidents, future presidents, and American newspapers took up the cause. Americans returning from travel through Greece reported widely through newspaper articles and speaking tours on the horrific conditions the Greeks suffered. Starvation, massacres, slave markets where sometimes entire village populations were put on the auction block. There's a beautiful online exhibit, The Greek Revolution Through American Eyes, that can be accessed through greekrevolution.org. I was able to view multiple documents there about America and the Greek War of Independence. One exhibit stated that after hearing of the plight of the Greeks, many Americans felt a burning desire to support Greek patriots in their quest for freedom and work actively to help them accomplish their goal. Greek fire. So when ladies' societies sewed tons of clothes for donation and private citizens began raising money through philhellenic or, uh, organizations to hire merchant ships, load them with food, medical supplies, clothing, and weapons, the U.S. government turned a blind eye. 
private citizens could do as they pleased in a democracy. Even when a New York City Philhellenic committee helped revolutionaries hire a local business to build a warship, which made its way to Greece and the rebels, the Monroe administration was technically off the hook. Edward Everett, a professor of Greek at Harvard, was one of the handful of Americans who traveled to the Ottoman Empire to be witness to the struggle. He translated the Proclamation of Liberty of the Messenian State and passed it on to popular publications read by intellectuals and those in power. He wrote letters addressed to the American people to stand up for Greece. He became secretary of the Philhellenic Committee in Boston, fundraising for Greece and passing on letters he received from those fighting and setting up hospitals near the front lines. And fighting alongside the Greeks were men from all over the world, young men. The American Philhellenes in battle were mostly from the Northeastern United States. By education, they were already Philhellenes and passionate to see Greece free. These young men left home to volunteer as soldiers, doctors, and humanitarians thousands of miles away in a country ravaged by violence. Some of these Americans became permanently linked to Greece. Some died and were buried there. What prompted these men to risk their lives for Greece? Who were they? What was it about Greece that touched their hearts and drove their passion for the Greek cause? George Jarvis is possibly the most famous and most beloved of these men. He was the well-educated son of an American diplomat in Germany. He was swept up early in the war by the call of his German friends to fight for Greece and was the first American to join the Greek Revolution. Jarvis started off serving two years in the Greek Navy as Captain Zervos. In our episode, Speak Greek, guest Marianne Kokidis talked about how Greeks have difficulty pronouncing the letter J, which becomes Z. So Jarvis became Zervos. Early on, Jarvis witnessed the destruction of Chios, a massacre ordered by the Sultan in retaliation for their rebellion. The Turkish fleet landed on the island on April 13, 1822, Good Friday. Churches and villages were burned to the ground. People were tortured, raped. 90,000 were killed. 50,000 were sold into slavery. The scale of destruction, of inhumanity, shocked the world. 2,000 people managed to escape the massacre. George Jarvis's ship had been sent to rescue survivors. His graphic descriptions in his diaries and letters reporting the horrors he saw, along with reports of others, helped galvanize American sympathy in the United States and Europe. Jarvis fell in love with the Greek people. He'd already adopted the Greek dress of the men he was fighting with and learned to speak Greek fluently. He tutored other Philhellenes in the language and was often mistaken by the others for a native. A Greek immigrant to the U.S. wrote about meeting Jarvis. He said, He conformed precisely to our habits and dress and manners and spoke our language without the least foreign peculiarity. I was much astonished when I found he was an American. That's pretty amazing. Jarvis participated in 13 naval campaigns and many battles on land. He fought in the siege of Athens, Naplio, Morea, and the defense of Messaloi, where he was adjutant to Revolutionary War hero Lord Byron. He fought with the famous corps of the Suliotis, fierce fighters originally from Iperos, and paid them salaries out of his own pocket. 
He led a contingent of these men, and together they took on the toughest missions, usually on the front lines. Jarvis was injured in the epic battle of Tripoli, which was then administrative capital of the Ottomans and the Peloponnesos. His leg was badly injured, and he was unable to retreat with the rest of his troops. Reportedly, he was left behind, surrounded by the Turkish cavalry. While they attacked him, he stood his ground, so to speak. Actually, he was laying on the ground, pointing his rifle, taking shots at the enemy. This gutsy move rallied his men, and they charged back to rescue him. Are any of these stories exaggerations? We don't know, because they're repeated over and over and over again. During another campaign where Jarvis fought, the Battle of Neocastro, the Greek army was forced into retreat. In the confusion, Jarvis and his famous corps were captured by the Ottomans. The Pasha leading the offense tried bribing Jarvis and his men, offering them money and their lives in exchange for switching sides. Another captured American, a physician, accepted the offer, but Jarvis and his men refused. Jarvis was tortured for days until he and his men were released in a prisoner exchange. He was sick and badly injured, but as soon as he recovered, he returned to battle. Besides charging around the battlefield as an officer in the Greek military, Jarvis was at different times during his career responsible for cataloging battle-ready ships, fortifying the defenses of Mesoloi, and commanding the artillery there. He threw himself into every aspect of the war, helping however he could. And Jarvis continued to advocate for the Greek cause in letters to American Philhonic societies. In 1827, he and American Jonathan Peckham Miller came together on behalf of the Philhellenic Committee to organize a distribution of supplies desperately needed by the suffering Greek people, including food, blankets, medicine, and clothing. For six years, he never left Greece in its time of need, even as his family urged him to come home. And he never saw his family again. He never got to see Greece finally free. He died of typhus in August 1828 in Argos at the age of 31. He was buried with honors with the rank of Lieutenant General of the Greek Army. He's still remembered as a hero in Greece. Jarvis wrote a poem sometime during his service to Greece. It is as follows. Remember me, my friends who hear from freedom's cause remains in Grecian seas and Grecian plains to break the most inglorious chains and seeks humanity. The man who worked with George Jarvis distributing American aid to Greece, Jonathan Peckham Miller, was more of a middle-class man. He'd served two years in the American Army before heading to university, but he dropped out before earning his degree to support the cause of Greek independence. He first met Jarvis in Missoloi in November of 1824 and served under him for two years. Like his friend and commanding officer, he learned the language and preferred Greek military garb, meaning the Fustanella and Surya that the Evzones would later be known for. He was so fiery and fierce in the multiple, multiple campaigns he fought in, he earned the nickname the American Daredevil. I looked everywhere trying to find out what he did because that's a pretty cool nickname. My researcher husband, thank you, Ed, finally found one reference in an article by Paul Hellefor in the Rutland Herald, partly quoting from Miller's obituary, describing his actions in one battle. 
He was in command of a small contingent of soldiers near Napoleon. When he discovered that his company was surrounded by a thousand Turkish troops, he led a charge into the mouth of the lion. According to an account in Thompson's History of Montpelier, he dashed out into the midst of the closely investing foe, firing his girdle full of pistols and slashing about him with his sword as he went with such fury as to astonish the Turks, who instantly became panic-struck and fled. That was the American daredevil. After falling ill for a short while, Miller went to Crete, another island devastated by the Ottomans. He stayed for some months as he recuperated, helping the wounded there. Then he joined his former commander distributing those supplies we mentioned before, mostly to widows and orphans, including a box of clothing from Orange, New Jersey, which hits pretty close to home. Throughout his service to Greece, Miller wrote extensive journals and letters to the charitable societies devoted to raising funds for Greece detailing the tragedies he had witnessed. In one, he said, I see distress daily which can never be described. If there was ever a country that called for the charities of the Christian world, that country is Greece. When he finally left Greece to return to the U.S., Miller brought along an orphan of the Greek War, a three-year-old boy he later adopted, named Lucas Miltiades. Miltiades Miller became the first Greek-American to serve in Congress in 1891. And he wasn't the first or only orphan of the War of Independence to wind up in the U.S. Some of the ships carrying aid from the U.S. to Greece carried back orphans of the war to be educated in America with funds raised by Philhellenic charities. Many of these children were sent on to U.S. universities on scholarships and later returned to Greece as doctors, lawyers, and educators. The U.S. Constitution was one of the ships that brought aid and rescued orphans. Check out the sources page on our website, stealthgreek.com, for a 19th century painting of the USS Constitution and of the cargo vessel Tontine, which brought humanitarian aid to Greece, both courtesy of the Philhellenism Museum in Athens. Miller, like many of his American comrades of the Greek War, went on to become an abolitionist. Having seen the incredible suffering of the Greek slaves and finally gaining an awareness of the similar suffering of enslaved black people in his own country, he was determined to end slavery in the U.S. In his obituary, it was written that Colonel Miller espoused the cause of the crushed slave of America with the same generous sympathy and devotion that had previously marked his labors in behalf of the suffering Greeks. In fact, the Greek revolutionaries from the beginning, including Mavro Michalis in the Declaration of Liberty from March 25th, considered the enslaved blacks to be brothers in suffering when all men should be free. And he urged the American government to view them in the same way. I've saved the best for last. Most of the young American men volunteering to fight for the independence of Greece were driven by high ideals and romanticism. They were usually men of some means or at least common middle-class comforts and were shocked by the suffering and deprivations they saw in Greece. But they stayed. They stayed and they fought and they kept helping after they left and turned their eyes to those suffering in their own country. James Jacob Williams had no money, and he was no stranger to suffering or deprivations. As an enslaved black man in the southern United States, he'd witnessed torture, beatings, and abuse. He'd seen men, women, and children auctioned off like cattle. When he escaped from a sugar plantation in Maryland in May 1815, his only plan was to get to the port at Baltimore. There, he happened to stow away on a ship leaving for the Barbary Coast. 
Did he realize where the ship was headed or know it was a U.S. Navy vessel he had hidden himself in? It must have been dark when he snuck aboard. The ship was already out to sea by the time he was discovered and brought before Commodore Stephen Decatur. Decatur, a hero of the War of 1812 and the First Barbary War, was leading a squadron of ships against Corsair states to stop the threat to American shipping once and for all. But Williams wasn't tossed into the brig. He was assigned to the ship's galley. And by the time Decatur's small fleet reached the Barbary coast, Williams had joined the Navy and served as a Marine and sharpshooter in what would be called the Second Barbary War. Williams fought bravely during his service and earned the respect of the crew and Decatur. After the war ended in America's favor, Williams stayed on to complete his term of service in the Navy in 1827. Decatur knew Williams couldn't return to the United States, even though he'd served honorably in defense of American interests for over a decade. Williams would still be considered runaway slave by American authorities. Decatur suggested he go to Greece where another people were fighting to end slavery. Williams could have gone anywhere slavery was illegal to live out his life, but he went to Greece and offered to help. When he arrived, he was assigned to Admiral Thomas Cochran, a British Philhellene commanding a fleet in the Hellenic Navy. Like Captain Zeros, Williams quickly learned to speak Greek and dress like the men he fought beside in the Fustanella. In Admiral Cochrane's service, he repeatedly distinguished himself in battle. He's believed to have participated in the liberation of Athens, the Battle of Petra, at Hydra, and many other campaigns. He sometimes acted as a spy, infiltrating enemy lines to observe and collect valuable information, risking his life every time. During the fight for Nathpaktos, Williams led a band of Greek fighters on a mission to snatch an unmanned Greek ship called the Sotir from the bay before the Ottomans captured it. Williams diverted enemy fire towards himself so that his men could secure the boat. He was badly injured by cannon fire, breaking his arm and a leg. Patricia Klaus, in an article about Williams in the Greek reporter last year, nailed it when she said, Williams is the only American slave ever known to have escaped bondage, who then chose to fight for the freedom of another subjugated nation. Not only did he find freedom for himself, but he helped people half a world away win their own freedom against the tyranny of the Ottoman Empire. He fought in the Battle of Navarino on the west coast of the Peloponnesos. There he was badly injured and later hospitalized in Poros, at a hospital built by American Philhellene Dr. Samley Gridley Howe. Williams died in 1829. It's believed he's buried in Argos, near Lieutenant General George Jarvis. A portrait of Williams is available for view on the sources page on our website and was used in our announcements for the episode drop, courtesy of the Philhellenism Museum in Athens. Thank you, Constantinos Valenzas and Maria Letta Tzintu, for permission and for sending the images of the U.S. Constitution and the Tantine. In February of 2007, the Greek Parliament agreed to a request from the American Philhellenic Society to designate April 19th Philhellenism Day and recognize the contributions of those outside of Greece. Germans, Danish, British, French, Americans, and others that showed their devotion and friendship to the country during their fight for freedom. Greece had already created monuments and museums honoring the most cherished of all Philhellenes, including the ones we introduced today. 
Because of time constraints, I left out one of Greece's favorite Philhellenes, Dr. Samuel Gridley Howe. I'll be following up with an episode devoted to Howe in the near future. His story is truly inspiring. Greek Like Me is a Stealth Greek production. This episode was researched, written, and narrated by me, Pamela Diodes Wood. Our producer, photographer, and post-production editor is Douglas John. Additional research by Eduardo Gill. Please subscribe, rate, and like so we can keep sharing our love of Greek culture. Zito y Long live Greece. See you next time. Yes.